This is Client Side from Fox Agency. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about. Wait! Okay now, from the beginning. Baldeep Dogra is the director of product marketing at BlackBerry. He is leading the industry strategy for BlackBerry with a particular focus on government and global financial services. Baldeep is global technology leader with 20 years of experience in enterprise and proven execution against strategy. He has played a pivotal role in the turnaround of BlackBerry as the company pivoted from a device-centric organization to one leading in enterprise software and services in security, risk, and privacy. Baldeep Dogra, welcome to ClientSide. Thank you very much for the kind intro, Nathan. It's my absolute pleasure to be here with you today. Really excited to have you on the show. We had you on our webinar and it was amazing. So we decided to invite you back on so we can ask you more questions and dive deeper into some of the points that you made. So you've been with BlackBerry for about 17 years now. So you've had an insider's view on how the company has changed from a handset manufacturer when you ruled the world to kind of where you are now, a leader in cybersecurity. And we had Brian Clevenger on the show from BlackBerry VP of marketing a few weeks ago, and, and he walked us through some of the some of the major milestones. From your perspective, I thought it'd be interesting to start the show with how have you seen the company evolve over the last 17 years and talk us through the major milestones from kind of where they were in early 2004 to where they are today as leader in cybersecurity? Well, yeah, good place to start, actually. Now, you know, as a company, we've shaken ourselves out of those shackles of being a, a hardware-centric company, and we try not to talk about our formative years too much. However, I feel the company will only grow if it learns and adapts, and that's what I've witnessed and been a part of in the past, wow, 17 years. Uh, I was interviewing a candidate recently, and uh, she asked me how, you know, how come I've been in BlackBerry for 17 years? You know, what made you stay? And I said, well, look, it's continuous reinvention uh, while maintaining our core mission, which is to make a difference. Mm. And innovation reinvention is critical. And the way I see it, I've seen that every five years, there's been that kind of reinvention, that, that transformation. When I joined in 2004, it was all about form factor and we needed to grow an enterprise. And then five years later, it was about non-organic growth. You know, we made acquisitions like QNX and Atop for critical communications. And then there was the iPhone, the iPhone came out, and then it was all about apps. And then five years after that, we had to pivot uh, and Mr. Chen joined. And we began the pivot to software. And then five years after that, we acquired Silence. And now we've got that shift to cybersecurity. And I would say that throughout that time, I've been focused on enterprise customers, their needs and building teams to respond to those needs. Although where we are today is a big change from having customers like uh, like Jonathan Ross right. and his wife, Jane, David Beckham, <laughs> Tyron Brady, Matthew Vaughan. We had, we had the Ritz Hotel and the Royal Household. They love, you know, all the royals love using BlackBerry devices. They love their BlackBerrys. Absolutely. Interesting. Yeah, it's it's less of that now. And uh, because celebrities and enterprise don't really make it. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, good memories. Some of them do. Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, go down the list. There, there are some that have transitioned. But, yeah, they're not David Beckham. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I know. <laughs> oh, well. So... Before we get into um, sort of talking about the pivot that BlackBerry have made and also kind of what you've seen in marketing, you've got a really interesting background yourself, which I think it's, it's worth just spending a moment or two on. You've got a background in physics and astronomy, and that's not the typical background that you would normally see from marketeers. 
uh, within enterprise businesses. What impact has that had on the way that you think about marketing and growth? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Actually. I'm a bit of an odd, odd case, aren't I? <laughs> um, look, so I think what underlines everything is passion. I really wanted to do astrophysics and my parents didn't talk me out of it because I really wanted to do it. I'm, I wasn't a boffin. I'm not really a walking brain by any stretch, but I had a passion. And that stretched my imagination, that subject. And I can't think of any other subject that would uh, that would stretch your, your brain to the limit to the point where you think maybe, actually, I'm not supposed to understand anything beyond infinity. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I, I, university was great. Uh, yeah, I loved it. And I loved doing, you know, all the astronomy, you know, there's kind of late night experiments and that kind of stuff. There's a lot of maths. Yes, I know. But it was fun. It was really good fun. And I remember sending one of the university's first emails. And it was actually to an external recipient mm. using SMTP to a professor in Cambridge. <laughs> and that kind of kindled my appreciation for messaging because that's where I was going to get to uh, once I left university. Um, and that's when I started working in the 90s. And, um, you know, that's where the verb passion came into it. And that was to make a difference, right? Mm. And we all know IT was growing in the 90s and messaging was a key part. And I, that allowed me to go into into consulting and then into sales. And that helped me get a job at RIM, which is what we were called then, mm -hmm. Research in Motion. Mm -hmm. And I was in technical sales, mainly leadership roles. But then I wanted to do something different a couple of years ago. Um, you know, I had a great team, um, but I wanted to try something different. And, you know, I actually think I belong in marketing I was supposed to I was always supposed to come here I think that's because of my creative skills right mm. creativity I love it because uh, that stood out the most in my previous roles and management would say to me oh you know what you could have been a market you should have been a marketeer <laughs> um, I used to come out with all these one-liners and, and stuff like that mm. but most of all I love framing issues and needs you know and creating new things creating new solutions to problems I'm um, really into photography. So there's this artistic side to me as well. Mm. I think I get that art, artiness and creativity from my mum. She's a, a writer and an artist as well. So mm. I feel I've got something to fall on there. And I think it's all come together uh, in, in marketing. I would say so. So as, as director of product marketing, what are you responsible for? What are your main responsibilities? Yeah, great question. Um, look, uh, I joined at an exciting time. I joined my current role at an exciting time because we were rebuilding after the silence acquisition, and uh, I knew my, my current boss, I knew him, uh, had, had a little chat with him, Nigel Thompson. I said, you know, I want to help you out. Uh, what can I do? Look, as a company, we're essentially built on two pillars, cybersecurity and IoT. IoT is where our QNX division lives, for example. And essentially, I have ownership of the UEM area of cybersecurity and all the mobile aspects of our UES part of our cybersecurity as well. The UES is, includes some really exciting products that are built on our Silence AI platform. And luckily, I'm building a team to help me with that. So there's a lot to do. Now, in addition to that, I'm continuing to build on our vertical messaging tools, in addition to helping out with partners and messaging to partners, whether they're you know, solutions vendors, uh, channel partners, or, or strategic partners. Now, the objective here is to get our customers to think beyond the endpoint and look more holistically at the user experience right? and and securing that experience in a in a in a preventive and productive way and 
clearly marketing for BlackBerry represents so many different touch points and you're talking to so many different verticals and customer segments as well, all the way from sort of SMB all the way up, up to the enterprise. What role does marketing have in the way that it influences preference, the way that it influences demand? How Can you talk us through what the role of marketing and your role is on the overall growth of the customer base at, at BlackBerry? Yeah, it's becoming even more important. So, you know, you had Brian Clevenger before and he works in corporate marketing. These guys overarch our message, you know, who is BlackBerry today? What are we about? And where are we going? And we play a key part in, right, how does our, uh, how do our products in cyber, how does cybersecurity fit into that message? And how do our products fit into that as well? Uh, when I was in sales, I remember, I believed in the saying, everyone works for sales. And now that I'm in marketing as well, I feel that everyone <laughs> is a marketeer, mm-hmm. right? Because in sales, you know, you want people at the dinner table to talk about, right, look at this great device, mm. or look at this great piece of software, look at this great app I'm using, I'm, it's really secure. And, you know, you want to be at the pub and you, you could show off there, or you could talk about, uh, you could be in a concert. But a marketeer has to go, the next level be a bit more creative oh you know what you're at a dinner table you're talking about somebody's job and what they do and you could come up with an example and then you could actually bind their experience that little better Mm. and that's what i really like because now you are taking the customer experience so that it means something so so that it has value and that's kind of what where i think our role is absolutely 100 percent. we need to make sure that everyone understands what that value is that we're giving to to, to our customers mm. and you know listen to them more because that value could change over time and it could you know we need to adapt and in order to meet that we have things like customer engagements where we have in person and virtual events like advisory councils where we listen to our customers and allow a discussion to happen uh, between our customers and get some action points that we can actually take away. Mm. And, you know, we've got our own security summit in October that we all take part in. But uh, we also take part in other major large industry events as well, present the keynotes, take part in breakout sessions, and we get more and more engaged with those. Um, I'm actually looking forward to my first in-person event in November. That's exciting. I haven't done one of those since February 2020. Oh, my God. Um, so, yeah, in front of real people. Uh, I, can't, I, I can't wait. <laughs> Are you sure you don't want to put on your, your Zoom at the same time? You, you, you probably make you feel a bit more comfortable. <laughs> I might end up doing that just, just for, just for habit's sake. Just for old time's sake, right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So aside from events and media and advertising, what, what other commercial channels are you guys using to drive the business forward to deepen the emotional connection with the customer base and to ultimately drive demand? Yeah, I, I think our, our direct engagement is incredibly important. And, you know, we, we've got a team dedicated to that. I think our engagement through our partner community is huge. Now, most of our sales is done through our channel partner community. Listening to them is incredibly important because they give a different perspective, a different take to the value that you know that we need to provide our customers. So we listen to them. We actually have a you know a separate, completely separate team dedicated to our channel partners with a you know with a way to to be able to you know promote and message 
uh, everything that we do in a way that they will feel that they can be a part of and that, you know, it, it will just resonate with them, mm. you know, and help them in their business, but also to respond to their customer needs. Mm. And we know as well that in B2B, consumers and decision makers, and especially people at the enterprise are far more emotional than they are rational, even though a lot of us still create communications that are far more rational in nature, because we feel decisions should be driven by logic and and rationality. When in actuality, there are so many of us, you know, human beings are essentially kind of this walking bag, bag of emotions. Yeah. Talk about how you've used emotional messaging in your communication to drive deeper engagement with the brand, to drive the business performance. Is it something that you think about a lot? Maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah, the brand is incredible. When I, when I joined BlackBerry in 2004, you may or may not remember, some people might do, but we were represented by an envelope in motion. Mm. And when we changed our name from RIM to BlackBerry, we changed the logo to a group of data packets in motion, which if you look carefully, it spells a letter B twice, demonstrating BlackBerry security uh, within these data okay. packets. So it's quite clever. And that's that remains with us today. But look, here's a little interesting side note for you. Uh, in 2008, we were, believe it or not, number one on the list of global super brands. Hmm. And I think we were first on that list for a couple of years. I don't know if you've seen super brands. They have, they, they've got this great big book that you get hmm. if you're on the list. Hmm. Um, and, you know, we beat Coke. Uh, not many companies have done that. Right? And, you know, that was 12, 13 years ago. And that was when we were at the peak of our emotion. But now the brand is less about emotion and more mm. about trust. Mm. And we just don't want to be trusted by enterprise leadership. We want to be trusted by the end user as well, because we're building our software to allow maximum productivity while giving them peace of mind. And we feel that will lead to more emotional attachment with the functionality we provide, because now they can do the work they want to do wherever they want to on whatever the device they want to. And that's why our BYOD story is so strong as well. So we feel that that will bring an additional layer of emotional attachment to uh, to our products and services. Let's talk a little bit about cybersecurity. We've seen several high profile cybersecurity attacks, even over the last sort of 12 months that have affected all sorts of businesses across all industries and across all geographies, actually. In in what ways have those sorts of attacks affected your customers' behavior in the way that they think about threat detection and the way that they think about protecting themselves from third-party threats? Yeah, cybersecurity has changed so much in the past 30 years. You probably remember the days when there was one little anti uh, virus coming out and an antivirus uh, company would respond to it in, in a day or days or weeks. Right. It's not like that anymore. You're going to be very quick. And that's why we prefer preventative medicine as opposed to reactive. Mm. But I think generally the rise of these attacks is, is quite alarming and they've definitely brought the prospect of disruption front of mind. I think that's the kind of key thing here. And we know ransomware is all about criminals asking for a ransom. Right. However, whether they get paid or not still impacts the day to day business. Mm. Time really is money and you take time away in a cyber attack. And in addition to this, customers are also more cognizant of the impact of cyber attacks on not just their IT infrastructure, but also what we call operational infrastructure as well, or OT, uh, which is 
like industrial equipment and assets that, you know, even things that are monitoring the uh, supply chain. So you've probably seen there's been a lot of attacks on supply chains as well. And that's why I've got a huge focus at the moment on manufacturing and uh, and utilities because their industries, for example, which have seen more growth in cyber attacks, particularly, you know, on the OT side, the operational side. Really interesting. So as it relates to manufacturing then, let's say, what are the main threats that the manufacturing sector are open to or prone to these days and how do they protect themselves? Yeah, I think fundamentally, I need to be absolutely clear on this. Um, I would say there's an even split, give or take, between uh, internal and external threats. Okay. Internal threats is all about cyber hygiene with threats that could stem from things like a lack of process to deal with external threats, for example, to users clicking on phishing links mm. or accidentally going onto malicious websites or even using apps that have been exploited for malicious use. You know, in the main, the users are innocent, right? It's, it's not their fault. But that's something that process can help fix. That's something that education can help fix and behavior. So that's in the, what, what we call the internal threat. So how how do businesses stop that? I mean, it's very easy. I mean, in a busy day, you've got a million different emails. You've got lots of tabs open if you look at my computer. Yeah, I know. It's very easy to click on a, a link that is sent from what you think is a colleague or an associate. How do businesses sort of stop that when actually in many instances, it's just an innocent click? I know you can't stop it all, can you? you, you there's bound to be something that somebody can't recognize. I saw an article recently where some threats from the Far East were malformed URLs where they're actually written in Cyrillic and not in the kind of Roman fonts that we're used to. Mm. And if you can recognize that, don't click on it. You can't tell everybody that. No, not everyone can, can see that one font is different to the other and that its origin could have been from somewhere else. Mm. So yeah, I completely agree. It's not everyone's going to get it. And so that's why you need to be prepared for those external threats. And, you know, one of those is, is ransomware, right, mm. which continues to plague every industry. Do you know that so far in 2021 alone, we were talking about 2021 just a minute ago, but so far there have been about 304 million attacks. Mm. And that's an increase of 151% increase on last year. And that includes high-profile attacks like the Colonial Pipeline, where they paid almost $5 million. But you know, it's going to happen, but you just got to be prepared for it and, and prevent uh, anything like that. And and help us put that kind of stat into perspective. I mean, what what is the impact of that number of cyber attacks on business outcomes, on lost revenue, on performance, on productivity? I mean, help us kind of quantify the impact of those cyber attacks a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I don't have a firm amount on those 304 million attacks yet. <laughs> um, I, I actually got it from Sonic Wall. Uh, some great stats. The last year, we, we lost 20 billion to ransomware. Wow. And that was about 200 million attacks. Hmm. Right. So I'm, I think we're close to 40 to 50 billion this year so far. Just from companies paying? Just from companies paying out ransoms. Wow, yeah. that's phenomenal. It's a lot. <laughs> I mean, Colonial Pipeline paid $5 million. Yeah. But the impact of their business... Well, that it'll just dwarf the ransom they paid. So they just felt they had to pay it. Really interesting. Impact on brand and reputation and consumer exactly, customer exactly. trust. 
all the rest of it. 100%. And then, so what's the role of leadership in all of this? I mean, should it be driven by the CISO and the head of IT alone? Is it just their remit? Because it seems as though, you know, <laughs> when everything's going well, they're not really troubled and that, you know, they're, everyone's saying that, that, yeah, you're doing a great job, continue doing what you're doing. It's only when the company has an attack is when they're kind of brought into sharp focus and everyone starts pointing fingers. It's kind of a a thankless task in many ways. What should be the role of leadership in identifying and mitigating cybersecurity threats? Yeah, the CISO role is very tough at the moment. I remember once having dinner with a bunch of CISOs, and this was about 11 years, 10, 11 years ago. And a CISO of a major international firm said to me, he loved BlackBerry because it ticked his three boxes of securing data at rest, securing data in transit, and it prevented data leakage. That was then, and that's still the case now, by the way, but things have moved on with things like zero trust and the need to be cyber resilient. Mm. And as such, you'll you'll find that the chief operating officer is key to making sure that hygiene is being driven. Uh, The head of risk has, has a huge interest because, you know, risk to the financial uh, outlay of you know of these what these threats will cause is very very big on their agenda. The, so the chief risk officer, or whoever is heading up risk, will be pretty much uh, accountable as well. But then you've got the CIO who, who will play that pivotal role to ensuring that the infrastructure cashes those checks right, that it follows suit, it makes sure that that they're able to meet it from a technology perspective. But yeah, all the other heads have a place in saying right, as a business, we need to approach this in a certain way. Uh, We need to make sure that we are resilient and that we do have continuous operations. Hmm. But but it doesn't stop there, right? Because the leadership now have to count on other teams like the user experience team Hmm. and other user groups. They're just as important because they can help with that education. They can help contribute to reducing insider threats to, you know, through knowledge, through using devices properly and and apps properly and that sort of stuff. I spoke with a a CISO of a of a large financial services company last year actually and he said that one of the interesting things that they do is they actually interview those individuals responsible for some of the cyber attacks, you know, reformed, you know, reformed criminals, they've they've done their time and they're now talking to uh, CISOs about how to prevent cybersecurity attacks. How much of the work that BlackBerry do really involves sort of speaking to and sort of learning from these people? Because to a certain extent, cybersecurity is very much a reactive, or the perception from the outside is that it's very much a reactive sort of program, right? There is a threat or there is uh, a nefarious individual somewhere in the world who uh, develops some code, writes some code and, and, and attacks an organization, we are then reacting to then what has been done. How much of what you're doing is about being proactive, stepping into the shoes of the attacker and actually kind of preempting the threat that is that is being proposed? Yeah, and that's where prevention is better than cure, right? It's, it's like COVID, get, get the jab <laughs> and, you know, you'll, you'll, it'll help you in the long run. Mm. It, it's the same with with cybersecurity, you know, when you think of the organization as a system, it's very important to think of, right, what are the components of that system? And how do we prepare that system for an attack? How do we prevent the attack? And that's where we kind of come in. And that's why our, um, you know, Silence AI uh, machine learning capability is very, very important. And 
Uh, what's critical is that it's it's been learning for the past seven, eight years. It's a well-learned model. As you probably know, machine learning is, is only as good as how much it learns. Yeah. Uh, we've learned a lot. Our model has learned a lot. So there's you know all these attacks that you've seen recently, we could have prevented all of them. And Colonial Pipeline could have prevented that ransomware from happening. Mm. And they wouldn't have lost you know, the five million in the ransom and they wouldn't have lost the many millions in operational costs after that as well. So we actually, we want to, to, to us, that's making a difference. We want to make sure our customers know that they can prevent all this stuff from happening. Mm. You know, educate users, best practices. You know, every good security policy these days is tips on being able to identify malicious communications. We just discussed that. But what happens if they do click that link? Mm. They need to, we need to make sure that, that uh, it doesn't go any further. And then just, just bringing the, uh, the interview to, to a close, Baldi, yeah. I mean, what things are you most excited about when you're thinking about the future of cybersecurity and the, the, the evolving threat that is always kind of on the horizon, but yet still quite far away? You know, how do you think about what the future of cybersecurity looks like? On our last talk, I remember one of the other delegates saying, we shouldn't worry. And he's right, we shouldn't really worry because it's not a good look for anyone, but we shouldn't be complacent either. I, I honestly think that if you think of when you're at home, you lock your front door, you close the windows, you set your alarm up, you set up your security cameras, you're doing that because of peace of mind. Uh, and that's because that's all we can do. Mm. Cybersecurity is exactly the same. Be prepared for, to prevent those attacks, maintain the hygiene, educate users, and review regularly. And then the other thing, which I think is a mix of exciting and scary, is the next transformation in computing, quantum computing, and the revolution it will bring in, in computing speed. Hmm. And cybersecurity will, will need to adapt as well. And a well-learned AI ML model will be even more critical to have uh, when that happens. Hmm. So, yeah. Hmm. And, and my final question, you've, you've seen BlackBerry go through this tremendous sort of digital transformation over the last 17 years. What, what advice do you give to aspiring brand and technology leaders about how they best handle their own internal digital transformations? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good question. I, I look after students as well uh, in the team. And I always say to them, don't, you know, don't follow a crowd if you can help it. Do something you enjoy. Do something where your skill set can be used, broadened and made richer. And be prepared to learn and soak in the transformational change in technology because it's going to happen. Mm. Right? It's, it's a daily thing. It's very exciting for sure, but stay focused on on the customer and the customer's needs without them will be pointless mm. and it needs creativity don't be afraid to try something new innovative thinking is more than just improving technology it's about adapting and um, and improving behaviors too mm. and uh yeah most of all enjoy it have fun mm. great place to end baldeep thank you so much for doing this yeah thank you nathan it's been great if you'd like to share any comments on this episode or any episode of Client Side, then find us online at fox.agency. If you'd like to appear as a guest on the show, please email zoe at fox.agency. The people that make the show possible are Zoe, our booker slash researcher. David Clare is our head of content. Ben Fox is our executive producer. I'm Nathan Anibaba. You've been listening to Client Side from Fox Agency. Join us next time on Client Side, brought to you by Fox Agency.